You might have heard that saying that dog training is both an art and a science. And I kind of agree with that statement because training plans, even when rigorously based in science, can often benefit from creative thinking. I can't think of any other trainer that thinks more creatively in the work she has done with dogs, especially the dogs who have issues on leash. Leslie McDevitt's look at that from her seminal work with the Control Unleashed series is just one example of the outside of the box thinking that goes on in her brain. And in this episode, we chat about an awesome variety of ideas where Leslie's creativity shines through, including things like latte, cooperative counter conditioning, and pattern games, all used to help dogs with aggression. And if you are working with aggression cases or plan on taking aggression cases as a trainer, or maybe you're even struggling with your own dog, we have a variety of educational opportunities just for you, including the upcoming Aggression in Dogs Conference happening from September 30th through October 2nd, 2022 in Providence, Rhode Island, with both in-person and online options. You can also learn more about the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, which is the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world for learning how to work with and help dogs with aggression issues by going to aggressivedog.com. And special thanks to John LaSala for editing the podcast this season and bringing the production to the next level. Welcome back to The Bitey End of the Dog. I'm here with the one and only Leslie McDevitt, who is the author of the internationally popular Control Unleashed series of books and DVDs. Her books have been translated into many languages, and people all over the world have learned how to use her science-based and empowering methods to help companion, performance, and working dogs learn how to function optimally without stress in very challenging environments. If you have a dog that worries about stuff, other dogs, people, noises, the unexpected, Leslie has many fun counter conditioning games just for you. Leslie is a popular conference speaker and is especially proud to be a presenter at Clicker Expo and a consultant for the PenVet Working Dog Center. She also has runs an awesome Facebook group called Friends of Control Unleashed, if you guys want to check that out as well. I'm super excited to get to this podcast because there's a lot of things we get to talk about. So welcome to the show, Leslie. Hello. It's great to have you here. You know, I was thinking this morning about when you were writing Control Unleashed and you had the section on Look at That, I thought to myself, I wonder what Leslie thought when she was writing that section about just how many dogs and people she's going to help with that little section of her book and how it's going to balloon to this huge thing <laughs> where everybody's using it and then making different iterations of it and oh calling it different things. And and you're really in the top list of like most influential people for dogs that have issues out on walks. Really, when you think about it, like that look at that concept has been shared and used and, and now it's worldwide. So how do you feel about that? It's, I mean, it's crazy because when I wrote the book, I didn't know that anybody, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I had people that were reading my articles and that's how the book started. And obviously my own students and everything using look at that and the other stuff. But I mean, I, I didn't know what was going to happen for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, let's face it, you have this incredibly creative mind, especially when it comes to dog training and behavior. And, you know, you have these awesome concepts. We're going to talk about all of them throughout the episode, but it's the, you know, what in your mind said, all right, I'm going to actually teach my dog to look at things in the environment. Because the old way of doing things were like, we want the dog to ignore everything or watch me or forget right. about everything else in the world and just focus on the handler or the owner. But what made it go, well, let's do the opposite. Let's actually teach our dogs to look at those things in the environment. One reason is just my, my oppositional temperament. If you tell me to do something, I'm going to do the opposite thing, but figure out how to make that work better. 
So, and now that my kids have that same temperament, at least I understand that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I I did come from the the place of like conditioning a lot of eye contact around other stuff, mm-hmm. but I was always aware of a kind of behavior chain emerging where when they see things, they know to then turn back and look at you. So you're turning something in the environment into a cue to pay attention to you. And so it doesn't have to be like a fight. Like it's either you see this thing or you see me because stuff out in the world can remind you to turn and look at me. Right. And then um, I watched a, you know, TV commercial movie trainer thing. And they were talking about teaching the animal to visually find their a mark and look at it. And so that's different because they need duration of looking in a certain direction. And I don't, I don't want duration with look at that. I just want the dog to kind of glance towards something and, and back to me. But it gave me that idea about maybe there's a cue for that too, because the more kind of structure or framing you put around an experience, the less reactivity you get. You know, if you name something, name it and reframe it. I like to say that because you're sort of normalizing it then. And then also, um, I heard Pam Reed talk about the concept of putting quote unquote bad behavior on cue. That was just right up my alley. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to teach them to look at things on cue for me. The thing is, um, I wish I hadn't named it look at that. It's really like, I should have called it something like the find it game or the report it game, because really, I don't actually care if they're looking or seeing it something. They're learning to use some kind of indicator behavior. And now this was before like a nose work was a thing. But now people that do the nose work sport understand that dogs can use a behavior to indicate they found a scent that you can't smell, right? Whether it's like turning and looking at you or whatever they're doing look at that is similar in terms of they're using some kind of behavior, some kind of orienting towards something and then back to you. So they don't have to like turn their head and stare at something. You know, oftentimes they start flipping their ear back, like in the direction of the thing, you know, Um, or just like a slight head tilt or, you know, some really minor, subtle, small thing. And that's their way of communicating with you. They know something's there. They know that they're going to get paid for reporting it to you. They don't really need to turn all the way around if they're getting rewarded for more subtle behavior. So you get this very, these very sort of small indicating behaviors and you can do it for sounds or smells because they can just, you know, orient in some way with their eyes, ears, nose, not forward movement, just something with their head and tell you the direction that some stimulus is coming from. So it really didn't have to be about looking. And I think um, people have taken it to like, if they're seeing something calmly or something like that, and it's really much more about having a conversation with you about what's out there. And desensitization is happening because it does, but but I'm really more focused on sort of a re- relational operant training that they can use the environment to get paid to report something to you. That's another one I like to say now, be a reporter, not a reactor, you know? Yeah, so if yeah. another dog shows up on your walk, they could be like, 
this just in, you know, and they can <laughs> tell you, you know, so it's not really about watching the other things so much. Yeah, it's it's kind of harder to come up with a good acronym with reporting in it. <laughs> so, yeah. so look at that as a as an easier acronym to remember. Right. Um, d- when you were developing it, were you thinking about the classical conditioning aspect of it? So like the whole Pavlov is on your shoulder saying where there's elements of classical conditioning, right. classical counter conditioning that can kind of seep into our uh, procedure there. Was that on your mind in the forefront or were you just kind of concentrating on let's just that- do this operantly? That issue was always on my mind, the way that Pavlov is always on your shoulder or whatever, like a like an old wise parrot. It just <laughs> happens. I don't spend a lot of time planning for it to happen because it's there. As long as I'm working with my operant counter-conditioning stuff, which is what I like to do, you know, sub-threshold, below a point where a dog is going to have any feelings of concern or discomfort, uh, the desensitization is going to happen as well. And you've added in now more letters to that acronym. So instead of L-A-T, it's oh. L-A-T-T-E. I've seen you kind of play around <laughs> with that as well. So what is that? Yeah. Um, that on there? I'm <laughs> I'm not taking the blame for adding those letters. Um, <laughs> no. So I have a kind of new game, if you want to call it, or procedure. We're calling it LATTE, which was a joke. It stands for look at that, then enrichment. So I wanted to do something that changed the, the feeding strategy for look at that so that you could use it in more contexts. So with a look at that, it creates a real um, like working type relationship where the dog is really focused on you and, you know, a high rate of reinforcement. I wondered if like you were at a, a park or out in the world somewhere and something was happening and you didn't, and you wanted to the dog to just be able to stay there and chill out. Whereas look at that would be you're moving past something, you know, you're watching something. You know, I started out with a lot of sport dogs, you know, you're watching another dog do agility. You need to be able to turn and report it to me instead of bark at that dog, you know? And so it wasn't something where you're just relaxing and something's happening. The person doesn't need so much handler focus. So what I did was change the feeding strategy. So rather than like, the behavior chain where they turn orient towards something, turn back to you eat. I started putting out all kinds of like enrichment toys. When I had the first virtual control and leash conference, the look mat people sponsored us and they sent me like 50 look mats And so that's probably also part of why I created this because I suddenly had all this stuff. And so, you know, what I do with lots, I put out a loop. I like moving things in circles. So you know, a big circle of look mats And that way, you know, you could play, look at that, they see something, they turn back to you. Instead of just a treat, it's a bunch of stuff, you know, that they can lick, chew, smell, explore. So they have more time in place. And so for something like, you know, I, I was at the park with my young Belgian shepherd and I was taking him to this area where he likes and they're having a bird watchers meeting there. And there was like 50 people and I wanted to stay in that general area. And I wanted him to not just keep reporting to me about the people or in the bird watching place, but I wanted him to just actually like sniff grass and pee on things and do that. So I used this feeding strategy instead because it gives them a longer time to not be like working mode, actively engaged. Right. 
And like another example is a student that had ponies on her property and she didn't want the dog to bark. She wanted the dog to be able to just be out there and look at that as helpful for that too, because it's desensitizing them while they're seeing things. But it worked really nicely to just put out a loop and the dog could work the way around, stay at each place for a period of time. And it's encouraging like those more like natural behaviors of like forging, exploring, which is good for the brain. So they're, they're getting that piece of it while they're getting used to things being there. So yeah, it's a question I get a lot too. Yeah. It's about the the benefits of feeding on the ground or they mm-hmm. said, people ask me, Mike, do you toss treats on the ground or do you do longer feeds or duration feeds or treat scatters, those kind of things? And what are the benefits of it? And I think there's quite a bit of benefit from at, at least a stress reduction standpoint, as well as the enrichment standpoint, because yeah. as you mentioned, it gives the dog time to kind of just be right. like, all right, I can take a break here, go sniff, go, you know, for those treat scatter versus just that one and done kind of treat, right? Exactly. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. It depends on the context, on what's going on around you, and what that dog needs. I think that there's room for both. Like, have more tools, have more feeding strategies. You know, um, it's kind of funny, but I actually have seen it the most with the duration feeding. Like you said, um, I've seen the most difference using that with my horse, not with dogs. Mm. You know, that it just automatically activates that whole. Oh, I'm I'm grazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um it's a little bit different it's interesting you know and yeah. a lot of clicker trained horses they get conditioned to do a head a head lower behavior so that mm-hmm. plus feeding on the ground you know it's interesting. like a, i just see her calm you know calm interesting down. well i'd say for horses like the other day somebody was you know mowing and they were like mm-hmm. riding the thing you know next to her pen and all that that was mm-hmm. a great i have i have a little video of it too that's it's uh, the power of video too. <laughs> I love right? that you capture so much on video to share with the rest of us. The question that was coming to mind was the adjustments you make based on, and this is this podcast is being recorded right about the time that uh, social media is exploding with that recent study oh, done God, on breeds yes. and all the articles coming out about it. So we won't, <laughs> we won't go diving into that. But uh, do you make adjustments for when somebody's using look at that for certain characteristics or breed? traits dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah so no, let's, let's use an example like a you know if you've got a dog oftentimes we're using it for dogs that are you know nervous or fearful of the environment mm-hmm. or having a tough time in the environment but what if you're looking at some of the more breed specific tendencies like a maybe a belgian malinois that's How more dare likely you? to protect their owner <laughs> or a livestock guardian dog and we actually um we sometimes run a risk of shaping that behavior maybe in the wrong direction do you make adjustments or see that happen? In no, I haven't because the behavior is not watching something. The behavior is turning away and showing you where it is. And so it's it's framing, seeing something into a structure that that is helping the dog stay in the sort of operant, I'm working and eating cookies state of mind, which is the opposite of, oh, I'm now in the part of my brain where I where I use a strong eye or stalk, you know, or those mm-hmm. those types of predatory behaviors, because it's a different part of the brain that we're accessing when we're doing counter conditioning work. So it's actually quite good for dogs that do that. 
Let me dig a little deeper then. So let's say we have a dog without any fear issues or any, you're not noticing any anxiety. So if we were to replace, you know, guarding the owner with a lab chasing down a tennis ball or a retriever or a pointer pointing at something, we can argue that there's no, that is a different part of the brain in, in play, right? So it's not right. fear-based. Yeah. And the dog's kind of just doing what they're doing. So if we go back to that Belgian Malinois, they're a livestock guardian dog on their right. property and we start marking for looking or or reinforcing for looking and then looking back at the handler. Do you see any risks in those cases? Well, we're not reinforcing for looking, right? We're we're reinforcing right. for indicating. Yes. So you can think of it as like yeah. a visual Recording. nose work. I found something and I turned around. And it's it's that part that's getting reinforced. If we were accidentally reinforcing for looking, which in this context is related to like the motor pattern I with a capital E slash stock, right? Which is what I don't want. Then you'd be getting more of that. So if you're playing look at that, you're getting a dog that is looking at you and really not the other thing at all, or maybe tipping an ear. That's the irony, right? They're not looking at that. If you were getting a dog that was moving into the those motor patterns and really watching something, yeah, that I would call that, first of all, quote unquote, over threshold for playing this game. You know, <laughs> if the dog isn't quickly turning back to you and able to eat and able to offer operant behavior, they're quote unquote over the threshold for that game. So that means they need distance or cut down on the visual stimulus. Like for example, they're looking at a helper and the helper is moving around and it's too much. You know, they're not turning back quickly. They're starting to, like I talk about going from the orient behavior, just notice to I with a capital E, which is a little bit more intensity, a little different. And that's the start of like, a motor pattern we don't want, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as long as they're kind of glancing at things, turning around, eating, it's not an issue. If they're going from that space to that eye space, that eye stock space, then um, you need to change some conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So again, if the helper is moving around, the first thing you could do is have the helper stop moving and then see how much, what the latency is there, if the dog is turning back faster or not, if the mm -hmm. dog... Is the dog eating right away? Like, because that's what you need, right? You know, you can change distance. You can do a number of things. If the dog is doing those things, then that is giving you information about you yeah. need to play with these conditions and fix something. Something's not working. So a good or having good observation skills, I should say, is an important part of it. But the nice thing about it, though, I also found is that it's hard to screw it up, <laughs> right? You yes. can do look at that. And it's really, it's, it's one of the types of, uh, and I love the choice of words using game instead of procedure or right. behavior plan. That, com that comes that. from being a, an agility, a former yeah. agility person. Everything and is words a game. matter though, you know, game makes it much more, you know, you, we move away from all the stuff I was just talking about where right. we're actually, we're looking, we want to make sure that that dog is actually comfortable in their environment to do that game. It's an observation, observation game, Mike. We're just, <laughs> we're just playing observation games. There's no pressure on us as trainers. All right. I can't think of a good acronym for that one either. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, so the speaking of games, let's jump into pattern games and how you came up with that. So mm -hmm. uh, real quick, what, what is pattern games for those that may not have heard of it? So I tend to see things in patterns because I may be crazy, but um, it helps animals feel better to know that something is predictable, that there's a, a structure or a set of rules or a script associated with certain contexts so they go oh the the clown has arrived 
well, that means I'm going to do this and then that's going to happen and then that's going to happen. So, you know, a pattern is kind of like several things that just keep repeating. So that's one aspect of it. And then you can start kind of doing some environmental exposure to various things. But while the dog is already operating within a pattern framework, so they're like, oh, my God, I just saw that clown. I'm not anti-clown, really. <laughs> and now and but now I'm back to doing these same repetitive three things. So rather than just walking down the street and seeing another dog and being surprised by that, if they're walking down the street within one of these pattern games, okay, they're already sort of working within a framework where they can see something and go, oh, well, but that's just part of my pattern. During this pattern, I see things and then I turn back and I eat and then this happens. And so it's a way of giving you a structure. And I have ones for when you're moving, ones for when you're not moving, different things you can fit to your situation. So what in Leslie McDevitt's brain made you think of, I'm going to teach patterns to dogs to really help them out? Like, what was, was there a moment where you're like, this is something I can really incorporate in lots of different activities or games or that's going to help dogs out? So I, th I think it's about that idea of like a, a portable rule structure. So, you know, my mentor was at the, behavior department at the University of Pennsylvania, right? And she talked, Dr. Karen Overall, veterinary behaviorist, some of you know, and she talked a lot about the idea of a rule structure, that dogs that are anxious feel better, obviously, just like we do, when they know what to expect. Her relaxation protocol has a lot to do with that. You know, I have a lifetime of, of therapy, meditation, different things for my anxiety as well as working with anxious dogs and that idea of a structure so you see things but you're within a framework that is predictable and safe i just immediately was like oh and so this idea of of different patterns you can use for different contexts is, is related to that you know so what I've seen from the pattern games is oftentimes, you know, I've used it in my own, with my own clients and they love it. It's especially useful for when you're out on walks and you're trying to get a dog by something. And the standard I've seen is, you know, you're counting to three, one, two, three, and then treat, one, two, three, treat. And so is there any particular framework or number rule for like how many times you count or what words you use or so walk us through that a little bit more. So in terms of a pattern, what matters is that it is a pattern that both you and the animal, because it's not just dogs, um, but that both you and the animal recognize that it's a pattern. And from that point on, you can make up your own thing. But the one that you mentioned, the one, two, three. So I just teach dogs that if they hear three, it means a treat's coming. So they're kind of three suddenly has a meaning and a value. And no, it doesn't have to be three, just three sounds that <laughs> happen in the same <laughs> order. That's, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be counting, but whatever. Right. And then I back chain it. So I say two and then I say three. So they're learning and then one, two. So they're learning if they hear one and two is coming. And if they hear two, three is coming. And if they hear three, a treat is coming. Yeah. I use that one a lot for, for movement when you need to move from one point to another past something. One thing is this idea of a set of rules that you can plug the environment into that helps you feel like things are predictable. But this is my other big thing. The idea of dogs controlling 
the game, the idea of dogs using a behavior to say, I'm ready to do the next rep, right? That's like my big thing right now. So with the one, two, three pattern I just mentioned, the dog is not controlling the next rep. It's pure, like you said, Pavlov is on your shoulder. You heard three, here's a treat. But then there's another version of that pattern where instead of feeding from my hand, I'm going to put the treat on the ground. And the reason why is because that gives the dog an opportunity to look up at me, like, where's my next treat? And that's going to make me start counting one, two, three again. And so in that way, if I'm doing like a counter conditioning and say about walking towards something or walking past something, the dog now has the control to tell me if he wants me to walk the next rep. It doesn't have to be three steps. I could say one and walk five steps. You know what I'm saying? I would start out with three steps. And once they get the idea, they're trusting that they're hearing three. You can walk across the whole room in one, one, two, three rep. Okay. But in looking up, they have signed the contract with me saying like, yes, I know if I do that in this context, you're going to move that way. And so that's part of it too. I have additional questions. So the have you ever seen there's a limit to how many steps or pieces of that pattern? Can you count to like a hundred for some dogs or is there, have you seen a limitation to how long you um, can go in that pattern? Well, it's just three means the treat. So you, <laughs> and then yeah. you start over. There's no limit to how many steps you could end up taking in between counting. Can you count? Well, let's, let's say I start with 20 and here's a treat, 20, here's a treat. Then I go 19, 20. Do you think some dogs will be able to pick up that entire pattern of starting from counting from one if you... Yeah, I don't see up? why not. I mean, mm. the thing about patterns is that like they're in nature. Like we survive by understanding and predicting them. It's there and, and mm. animals learn them. I mean, if someone gave me 50 bucks every time they said 20 and I figured out that certain sounds come before that, I'm going to notice. Do you see an issue with the duration between each component of the pattern? So if I say, if I'm going across the room or going past, let's say, a scary dog, and we're on a threshold, we're at a God, we've got enough distance, I'm like, right. one, and then I pause for a long time, and I'm like, two, like, it'll take 10 steps and pause, and then two, and then, right. and then finally the third step happens at, like, 30 meters in. Do you see a problem with that? I don't, because if I'm going to do that, the dog is like really, the dog is there. I only actually do that when I'm teaching group classes and the dogs have practiced it so much that it's just not a thing and they're all passing each other and they know three happens at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm teaching a lesson, I'm, I'm not going to take a million steps in between things. Um, the other day I was, uh, I've been working with a dog that um, my friends have been they go to, is it Turks and Caicos? Mm -hmm. And they take some island dogs sometimes. And I've been working with one. The other day I was, I was teasing him. I was just saying random stuff in between counting to make sure he was still listening. I was like one. And then I was like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> and, you know, the owner was a little bit, it's, it's stressful, you know, the dog is barking at other dogs and this and that, but I can see him like kind of smiling because he's making up stupid words, you know. <laughs> but yeah, if they're not listening and waiting for the next thing that makes sense and is predictable, then they're over threshold. You have to fix what you're doing. It's that simple. Either that or they haven't really established the pattern right. yet. Right. So you're, you're kind of really looking for that res that attentive response, for yeah, lack of a better like, description. Exactly. This was, no, this was not my intention, but a lot of people now are using the 1-2-3 game as part of their recall training. Because when you go 1 
And the dogs have been sniffing around or something. And they're like, is two coming next? <laughs> <laughs> How does that make you feel that, you know, so many of your concepts, they're often taken, borrowed, stolen, uh, right. <laughs> credited <Hijacked>. nicely, <laughs> um, Frankenstein, <laughs> and then adapted to different techniques, some really great ones, some really creative ones, and then sometimes some that you probably- Things I may not have meant. a little bit, and, but, and sometimes you get credit, and sometimes you don't. Like, what does that make you think in your mind when you see, like, it's, maybe on, on another part of the world you travel to, and suddenly somebody's talking about your work? And well, control Unleashed, Control Unleashed, and, that and then happened. you see it's a completely different inter- iteration of what you meant. Or, well, right, and there's, like, six translations of the original book that I can't mm-hmm. read all the- <laughs> I don't know what they really say. No, it's it's weird. And I, I say often, this is not written in stone. Like what's important here is there's a, a rule structure that you both have agreed to or whatever. Now do now go and make your thing, right? So I want to encourage that being flexible and being creative, right? On the other hand, I don't want people to misunderstand it or misrepresent it. So I try to put things out there and be as clear as I can and and all that stuff. So it's it's a mixed bag. It's a giant unexpected mixed bag. Yeah. And like yeah. the recall yep. thing with one, two, three, if that's working, that's fine. I mean, I do say like you can use it as a test. Like uh if you say one and they're not looking up, sometimes you say two when they do look up, sometimes they don't look up until you've said three. The contract in that pattern is just when you say three, you feed. That's it. They don't have to be doing anything else. But if you're using it for a recall and you want one to mean come, something has to happen after you've said want. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, use it, but you have to you have to know what you're doing to make it mm-hmm. to make it fair and to make it work. Yeah. One really cool adaptation I've seen is with Dr. Linlin Cow's uh, when she's using it for um, cooperative yes. care. Yes, she so. is. Mm-hmm. She's one of my mentees, mm-hmm. and I love when I mentor people and then I shove them out there and make them present <laughs> on their stuff. Yeah, she's doing a great job on social media too, posting you yes. know, all of her work with that. So she shout does. out to Linlin. Yep. Yes. Um, also. Another one of my mentees, both of them I've certified to be control and elite instructors, Lynn Lynn and Amy um, Gavin Glasgow is the other mm-hmm. one. Yep. Um, she started doing a lot of muzzle training with one, two, three, you know, and then three, and then the muzzle goes on, and then a treat. And then Lynn Lynn has done a tremendous amount of work on all the cooperative care stuff using putting cooperative care into the context of, of a pattern. And so that's that's super cool. I love that. Yeah, it is. It's awesome to see. We're going to take a short break and we're going to jump right back into some other concepts like cooperative counter conditioning. Uh, So we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, friends, it's me again. And I hope you are enjoying this episode. You may have figured out that something I deeply care about is helping dogs with aggression issues live less stressful, less confined, more enriched and overall happy lives with their guardians. Aggression is so often misunderstood and we can change that through continued education like we receive from so many of the wonderful guests on this podcast. 
In addition to the podcast, I have two other opportunities for anyone looking to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, which include the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference. If you want to learn more about the most comprehensive course on aggression taught anywhere in the world, head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the Dog Pros tab and then the Master Course. The course gives you access to 23 modules on everything from assessment to safety to medical issues to the behavior change plans we often use in a number of different cases, including lessons taught by Dr. Chris Pockle, Kim Brophy, and Jessica Dolce. You'll also receive access to a private Facebook group with over a thousand of your fellow colleagues and dog pros all working with aggression cases. After you finish the course, you also gain access to private live group mentor sessions with me, where we work through practicing many different cases together. And if you need CEUs, we've got you covered. We're approved for just about every major training and behavior credential out there. This is truly the flagship course offered on aggression in dogs and is perfect for pet pros that want to set themselves apart and take their knowledge and expertise to the next level, or even for pet owners who are seeking information to help their own dog. And don't forget to join me for the third annual Aggression in Dogs Conference, either in person or online from Providence, Rhode Island on September 30th through October 2nd, 2022. This year's lineup includes many of the amazing guests you might have heard on the podcast, including Suzanne Clothier, Jen Shryock, Simone Mueller, Dr. Amber Batson, Kim Brophy, Karish Mawar, Laura Monaco Torelli, Dr. Simone Gadbois, and many more. Head on over to AggressiveDog.com and click on the Conference tab to learn more about the exciting agenda on everything from advanced concepts and leash reactivity to using positive reinforcement to work with predatory behavior. And if you'd like to show off your support for the podcast, this year we teamed up again with the folks over at Wolf Culture for some catchy, limited-run conference merchandise. Wolf Culture is known for their witty, nerdy, and no-nonsense apparel that was created in 2019 to spread more awareness towards the use of humane training methods. Their apparel is here to help you start conversations, advocate for your animals, and rep force-free training in a different way. Don't forget to get your conference gear. It leaves the site after 12-31-2022. If you want 10% off your order, use the code BITEY10, B-I-T-E-Y-1-0 at checkout. All right, we're back here with the one and only Leslie McDevitt, and we are going to jump into some more concepts or games that we've been calling them. And one that uh, Leslie and I were chatting about probably a couple of years back was this concept of cooperative counter conditioning. And it's really an awesome thing for, especially for intra-household dog-dog aggression cases, dogs competing over resources, mm-hmm. certainly something I've used and I've seen some of your work doing it. So let's talk yeah. more about that. First, the, again, the quick definition of what it is and just in case anybody hasn't heard about it. Okay. Well, counter conditioning just means you want to change what the, how the dog is feeling about a certain thing, right? So you want to change their association with what happens when they experience that thing and cooperative, meaning that you and the animal have signed a contract that like certain things are going to happen and they're okay with it. They can even direct it. They can do a certain behavior, like in the context of, of animal husbandry, let's say nail trimming, right? Cooperative nail trimming, or you can use the word voluntary to mean the same thing. You know, the dog sticks his paw out and that means you're allowed to clip a nail and then you, Maybe put a treat on the ground and it eats that, sticks his paw back out. You're allowed to clip the second nail. So, you know, which is is kind of a pattern, you know, things start to feel like a pattern. 
it's predictable and the dog can direct it with some some kind of behavior that has, has been agreed on that's going to start the next loop. So cooperative counterconditioning is just the dog gets to say, yes, let's do the next counterconditioning piece of this. So, mm. you know, in the context of like one, two, three pattern game that we were talking about, the dog looks up at you, that makes you do the next one, two, three, that's going to end in a treat. And then that gives the dog the chance to look up at you again. And if they don't, they're looking around, they're sniffing, they're doing something else. You're not going to go in that direction. You can wait for them. You could turn around and walk in a different direction to see if they needed more distance or whatever. But the contract was, if you look at me after I put a treat on the ground, then I'm going to start counting and I'm going to go in this direction because it's the direction we're facing. And if you don't, I'm not. And so that's what I mean when I say cooperative counter conditioning is that it's it's easy to set mm -hmm. the pattern games up so that the dogs can direct it. And I like to use attention as, you know, a behavior. It doesn't have to be eye contact, but just kind of like looking up, just being oriented towards you, being relational with you. If the dog's not doing that, they're they're not mm -hmm. they're not in the game. So I'm not gonna continue the pattern. So that's what I mean. That's what I'm using it for. And I, I stole it from the husbandry people. The idea of cooperative <laughs> mm -hmm. care, right? Because I love yeah. that stuff. But I'm my focus is on like anxiety about like social anxiety, not anxiety mm -hmm. about getting your nails trimmed or whatever. So I took it and said, How am I gonna explain this to people that the dogs can be in control. Yeah, exactly. So sort of also maybe referred to as start button behaviors yeah. or basically the dog communicating. I'm, as you mentioned, ready to go to the next step or ready for this next thing to happen in exactly. the world. And, you know, we were talking also about how we can use that for dogs that compete over resources. So, yes. you know, if we think about the sort of the history or the timeline of how we used to approach this, you know, way back in the day, be like, all right, two dogs are fighting over bones or something like that. So Get out like, the right, hose. Just... <laughs> That's going way back. Yeah. Or maybe not I'm so old, much. Mike. I'm old. <laughs> maybe not so much in some <laughs> cases, but the, you know, we would, we would say, okay, you guys just will separate you guys while you're eating your bones. Problem solved. And then right. we got to, let's teach you guys to station or going to, you know, you can be near each other, but just going to make sure you guys stay in your own places. And then we maybe start to add in elements of classical conditioning, classical counter conditioning, where you're chewing on your bone, the other dog enters the room and good stuff happens, you know, so more treats happen when mm -hmm. you see dog B in the room and then dog B leaves and then the treats stop. So, and then you came in with, all right, I'm going to teach you, meaning dog A, right? give me some start bond behavior that says you want dog B to approach because yep. that's going to produce a reinforcer for right? you. So again, your brilliant mind, uh, always thinking outside the box <laughs> and like, I don't think, like, you come up with so much stuff. I don't think you even remember sometimes. Probably not. Because we talk about we we shoot a lot of ideas back and forth. But uh, I think <laughs> you 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 had uh, we talked about this last year again, or maybe it was even before that. But so let's talk more about that. I and call that voluntary sharing. Voluntary sharing. Yeah. So I messed up my acronyms, but there's you no did. acronym for that. VS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, voluntary sharing. Where so let's talk more about that. Where yeah. it's let the dog, dog yes. A, the working dog, mm -hmm. tell you to give a resource to the helper dog. Because if you're in control, you feel better. And also, once that the helper dog has the resource, then the working dog will also get one. That's how he gets one, mm -hmm. right? By telling you to go ahead and give one to the other one. Yeah. 
So yeah, it works great. Also, it's funny. <laughs> Basically, I come up with things that are going to make me laugh, like <laughs> a dog telling me to give treats to another dog. That's yes. funny. Yes, because when we think about like, dogs actually sharing. Yes, it's very cute. and Or like a dog telling you to pet the cat that used to chase the cat. Now, you know, he does a voluntary behavior and tells you you can pet the cat. You know, just stuff like that. And you're like, what? All right. So some of the listeners are probably thinking, all right, so what does this look like when you do it or you start training this? So describe that. Let's use the cat as the example. And you've got a yeah. dog that formerly was jealous about the cat being pet. So would come over and maybe right. push their nose in or worse and try to get you away from the cat when they see you petting mm-hmm. the cat. So what do you do for that? What does the setup look like? So especially if you've already trained a behavior for like cooperative husbandry type work, um, a big one that people train for that is a chin rest. So the animal puts their head down on something, whether it's your hand, I'll train it to a hand or a target object because for voluntary sharing, you want the animal to cue you. And so if you're using your hand as a chin rest and you take your hand away because you're feeding them and you put your hand back out, you're telling the dog, I've stuck my hand out. You could, you should put your chin on it. So, you know, I don't want that. I want something as a target to be out the whole time. So, you know, the dog puts their chin on it. And what I'll do is feed the dog away from the target. So they have to go back there, put their chin on it again. It's like pressing a button to say, do it again. And so, you know, I'll train duration of that. They'll learn to stay for a certain amount of seconds with their chin resting on something. I also really like that behavior because their mouth is closed. They could be lying down while they're doing it. It's calm. They learn to wait till they hear a click and then put a treat out, right? And so that's how a lot of people would start with cooperative husbandry. The dog puts their chin down and maybe you pet them and give them a treat. And then the petting, you're going to turn it into like some light brushing and to whatever else, right? And if they move out of position, they break their chin rest before you were done and you stop. Mm-hmm. So... So that's one way you could do voluntary sharing is you you teach a behavior like like a chin rest. It doesn't have to be. And then I teach them. I'll get two bowls out now. Um, I don't even know that I had that idea back when I presented it for aggression in dogs, like the first conference I talked about this. But now what I'm doing is I'm putting I'm putting one bowl out. So the dog does their voluntary behavior and I put a kibble in their bowl. And then after a bunch of reps of that, I take a second bowl. There's no helper animal yet or anything, but I have a second bowl. The dog does the voluntary behavior, and I put a kibble in the second bowl, and then I put one in their bowl. So then the behavior is starting to say, put one in this other bowl that's not mine. Mm -hmm. And then I know that mine's next, so now I've added that element in. And then from that point, you could add in a helper animal at whatever distance it is and i might have them for example not even taking the treat but just sitting at a distance and i'm still putting a treat in the other bowl and then the working dog bowl you know and then maybe i'll put the bowl closer to the helper dog Mm -hmm. you can have steps it doesn't have to be you do this and i'm immediately going to feed this dog it could be i'm going to put a bowl and this dog is across the room it depends on the dogs that you have in front of you but yeah, ultimately, it's the working dog is going to put their chin down or do some other behavior, and you're going to put treats in the other dog's thing, you know. 
if guarding bowls is its own thing that needs to be treated separately, you don't have to put it in a bowl. But it's just, I like to have these kind of like visual, I'm going to put a treat here, and then I'm going to put one here. That's predictable, and this one's going to be yours. You know what I mean? It could be a cardboard box. You know, something that there's no obvious problematic history with. So that's one way you could do this. It's not the only way. That's a way that you could do this with what's called a duration, a duration start button behavior, where the dog mm. is doing something like resting their chin for sort of the whole rep. And it depends on what you want. So you could also do a quick behavior, like the dog look, makes eye contact with you and that causes you to put a treat in the other ball. So it can be something that happens quickly and it's over, or it can be something that they're really kind of doing for duration. So it's it kind of depends on your skill level or if you're working with clients and th their skill level and, you know, all that. So just to clarify, the chin rest, you want them to remain on the chin rest as that kibble goes into the second bowl. So that's the thing, right? Like, you just have to know how you want things and be consistent. So you could have it as the dog puts their chin down and then they lift it up as you're feeding the other dog. To me, the cleanest, purest best way to do it is to teach a duration behavior that's happening the whole time until you put a treat for them and that they get it Got to it. me that's the cleanest thing yeah, so i like sense. to teach my dogs keep you know it's a duration behavior so while i'm doing this other thing i like it if they're doing it until they hear some cue that means have this treat but it it doesn't have to be that you just have to be clean it has to be the same every time you know, it has to be consistent. It has to be predictable. That's all. And then if they move out of position before the next loop starts, I'm going to feed that too. Because otherwise it's not like they're, they're able to say yes or no if they're only getting fed for yes. Right. So mm -hmm. what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to feed it as a reset treat. So I'm going to put the treat where I would put the treat to move them off the chin rest behavior. Mm -hmm. They're going to eat it, and then they can decide if they want to put it back or not. And if they do, they say, okay, I'm going to go again. I need to make sure that I've changed the conditions a little bit if I think I know why they stopped doing it, you know. So let me just recap the whole loop then. So if we were dealing with a cat, right, and our mm -hmm. dog was jealous about the cat being pet, we want the dog to offer the chin rest, not us cueing it with our hands right. out. So the dogs can come over, chin rest, which says, go pet the cat. Right. We pet the cat, and then we produce the reinforcer for the dog. Yes. And let's say it's something not like in a food bowl. Let's say where we want to work towards those steps of petting the cat. That's a little trickier, right? Yeah, I wouldn't expect that. Do you make gradual approximations to it? Be like, you can be like, hello, cat, or like, yeah, I'm going to reach towards the cat, and then eventually with the full goal can, of full-on yes. petting? Okay. You can absolutely do it that way. Okay. And you know, okay. for some dogs, petting them or attention to them can be the reinforcer. So it's like, you tell me to pet the cat, and then I'm going to say hi to you. You know, mm -hmm. it can be that. And for others, it might be a treat or whatever. Do you see um, situations over resources that this wouldn't be appropriate? Like if it's a certain type of resource, maybe if it's the owner, maybe it's something that is not as easy to control in the environment. Um, I haven't personally seen it, but it's not like I've been going out, like collecting data on everyone that's used this for everything. I have worked with a, a few dogs that guarded their 
owner, if the owner was sitting down and the other dogs in the household came up to see them. And we've used it with that, that the dogs can learn to tell you to say hi to the other dogs and then, <laughs> and then uh-huh. them. But, you know, it's like each case is its own individual thing with its own conditions yeah. and what people are able to do. So, you know, never do anything that you're not, you don't feel totally 100% comfortable mm-hmm. that you know how to set it up. Especially in aggression cases, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm picturing, I just had this kind of strange thought in my mind about two dogs, if you taught the same thing. And let's say the resource yes. is the owner petting them and they both come over and they just start like rapid fire chin resting yes. <laughs> to say, all right, go pet the other dog. No, you pet the other dog. <laughs> it's like, who's on first? Whatever that is. Um, yeah, I mean, it's true. My stuff can put you in wacky places like that. So you may you may only want to have one dog. My dogs do do little behaviors to say give a treat to the other dog. Um, but it doesn't like affect our lives. Like my one border collie lowers her head slightly because that's her behavior that she came up with mm-hmm. that makes me do things. But yeah, if it was like dangerous, then yeah, you, <laughs> you can like I can be maybe messier in terms of my dogs can can offer behavior and I can dole out things. And if you can't be, then you have to figure that out. And it may be that. There's a specific target, and if it's not out, they don't have access to it for a specific thing. Mm-hmm. But you just have to figure that out. Yeah, you know? yeah. The first time I worked with someone that whose dog didn't want the other dogs coming up when she was sitting down for attention, I had a whole setup with like a baby gate and like a red cone. And if one dog went to the red cone, the other dog put his head down. You could touch that. I mean, you know, you have to set up. I like to use visual stations, right? So, you, so you, you know, this dog is going to be here. This dog is going to be doing that. And I like to have gates and whatever management. Management's fun. It's like part of this whole how you can be creative. Yeah. And that's the fun of training, the art yeah. of training, right? Is setting the environment. It is. That right? is the art. And that's also the scary part because I can tell you something on a podcast, but people can't see like, with their individual dog, maybe mm-hmm. I would say this and try that. And, you know, so it's like you have to take this and then you have to figure out how this is going to work mm-hmm. for your situation. How are you going to set this up? Yeah, totally, totally. So I want to pick your brain about what you have going on for something that's exciting you now, some of these new concepts, and maybe what? you can give us a sneak peek at. That's something you're thinking about next. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're brainstorming some new games, or maybe you have something that you're excited about that you're seeing happening in the dog training community. And I'm putting you on the spot because I know we didn't talk about this at all. I mean, frankly, right now I I have ducklings and I'm looking at ducklings, not the dog training community. (laughs) No, I I do like looking at, you know, working with other species and looking at what's happening Mm -hmm. with other things going on and, also, like with kids, as far as the dog stuff goes, I'm still just really focused on how to how to make counter conditioning as voluntary as possible and different in different ways we can set that up. The latte stuff is still pretty new. We've been using it at shelters. It's been excellent using it for some socialization that the, the dog's not sure about a new person or or whatever. And so we're having like a person kind of shadow the main handler so the dog looks up 
put treats at their station, goes to the next one, you know. And then the other volunteer, the dog isn't sure about yet, is just kind of walking around with them. And then at some point they switch places. And so it's a way to let dogs that don't have any prior training or relationship kind of start building a relationship, you know, an operant one where they're starting to look at the person and getting more confident that they can communicate with the different volunteers and that's going to make them go somewhere else and they get socialized during it. You can add talking and touching into once you have the general pattern going. Yeah, it's exciting to see just how much that concept, or it's not a new concept, but just recognizing giving the dogs much more choice and right. agency in their environment and to be able to make those choices and operate because the old, it's a complete shift from the old way of training, complete right? Where like, shift. you know, instead of stop doing this or do this or do that, it's more like, I'm going to reinforce you for what I like and I'm seeing and give you many more choices so you're not feeling restricted in making those choices. Right. Obviously done safely for our aggression cases. But- Obviously done safely. And you <laughs> yeah. know what? I'm going to say the opposite side of that coin which is that we can't be extreme about anything mm-hmm. or at least i can't okay i don't recommend it so you don't want to be like everything is choice for all dogs all the time because mm-hmm. some dogs don't that's not what they're going to do well with all right so if you have some some mm-hmm. underlying pathology some neurochemical stuff you know anxiety disorder obsessive compulsive disorder you can't be like i'm going to let you choose to engage in this behavior or not because the dog might actually need medication before they can even make make a choice if it's not you know so you can't assume all dogs are on that page you know there's some dogs that need behavioral medicine to be on that page you know there's some dogs that are have an anxiety disorder and being like now you have all the freedom they don't want it because they need to be told like they need a script that is feels safe and now in this situation you're going to do this and so really you need to just keep going back to the case you have in front of you mm-hmm. the really salient point and, and a very important one very too, salient. because yeah we don't want to you know this whole, this whole choice part of thing is it's important but you make a very good point about not just letting all dogs just go at it and just here you go you know operate on your environment that's not what we're talking about yeah 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 so uh what are you up to next and where can people find you so a lot of my time these days is with my mentorship group i certify people to be well they're already working trainers so i'm not certifying them to be trainers i'm certifying trainers to be control and leash trainers yeah i mean i'm working a lot with my mentorship group just have have a few firsts. Have my first guy in South Korea. Um, he just finished. And wow! Just different, you know, different countries is pretty cool. It's I'm very enjoying cool. that. Yeah, it's very cool to see the ripples that you're creating. And actually, he's coming to New York for some other reason, and he's going to drive down and visit me. Wow! Uh, so I'm I'm really psyched about that. That's amazing. That's amazing. And don't forget about the Friends of Control Unleashed Facebook group. Yes, everyone. and that's for anybody. Hopefully you guys have at least like one of the books or have watched the conference recordings, which you can get at my publishers, which is Clean Run, um, or something so that you're not going in there just totally cold. But even if you are, we're there. I force the... Um, the people in my mentorship program to show up and occasionally answer questions. And, you know, we're, it's a community. So, you know, we're there to discuss things, but it's, it's always helpful if you have heard some of the material first. It, Cause it's like 
thousands of people in there and someone shows up and is like, what's look at that or something. It'll get explained, but it's a lot easier if you have been exposed to it in some way. And then you can have more questions about your particular case or whatever. Excellent. Excellent. Leslie, thank you so much. I appreciate your wisdom and insight as always. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. It's always good to talk to you. (laughs) All right. My mind is going with, ah, I could have said this, this, that, and that, and also that. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this amazing conversation with the always creative Leslie McDevitt. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to AggressiveDog.com for more information about helping dogs with aggression. From the Aggression in Dogs Master Course to webinars from world-renowned experts and even an annual conference, we have options for both pet pros and pet owners to learn more about aggression in dogs. But what if you're looking at some of the more breed-specific tendencies, like a maybe a Belgian Malinois that's How more dare likely you. to... <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Thanks for joining me for The Bitey End of the Dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the looseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.